Hello, everyone, and welcome to our online event, Is Europe White? Assessing the Role of Whiteness in Europe Today, hosted by LSE's European Institute. My name is Jennifer Jackson Priest. I am Associate Professor of Nationalism in the European Institute and the Department of International Relations here at the LSE. And I'm very pleased to be chairing this event today and delighted to be able to welcome our stellar panel. Before I do that, however, just a couple of quick housekeeping notices. First of all, our event will consist of presentations from each of our panelists, followed by what I'm sure will be a very interesting discussion via Q&A uh, with all of you in the audience. When we come to the Q&A portion of the event, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen to ask a question. Questions will be submitted to me and I will pose as many as I can to our speakers. It would be lovely if you would please identify your name and your affiliation um, so that I can also attribute your question uh, to the right person. The event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. For those Twitter users in the audience, we are employing a hashtag and for today's event, this will be hashtag LSE Eurocentrism. Now, I'm delighted to be able to introduce our panel, uh, and this is in the order in which they will be speaking. We are joined today by Jean Beeman, who is Associate Professor of Sociology and affiliated with Political Science, Feminist Studies, Global Studies, and the Center for Black Studies Research at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Her work focuses on race, ethnicity, racism, international migration, and state-sponsored violence in both France and the United States. Nima Begum is a postdoctoral research associate at the University of Manchester Center on the Dynamics of Ethnicity, and her research is on voting behavior, political attitudes, and representation of British, Black, and Asian people. David Theo Goldberg is Director of the System-Wide University of California Humanities Research Institute and Professor of Comparative Literature, Anthropology, Criminology, Law and Society at UC Irvine. His work ranges over issues of social, political and critical theory, race and racism, the future of the university and digital technology. Now, Jean, I'm very delighted to hand over to you and look forward to beginning our conversation. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for this invitation and uh, that very kind introduction and good morning from California. So I'm really honored to be part of this panel and especially to be in conversation with my co-panelists whose work has inspired my own thinking on these crucial questions. So to briefly address the, you know, the general question as to whether or not Europe is white, I'm going to suggest that Europe has assisted, insisted upon and continues to insist upon its whiteness. It is an unstoppable force despite how the construction of what we consider Europe today relied on, it continues to rely on racial logics as revealed in the ongoing legacies of the European colonial project and in much of the world. This is a whiteness that is continually in quote unquote crisis and which, which we can see, for example, in discourses around racism and anti-racism, multiculturalism, Brexit, police violence and brutality, or the presence of Muslims in Islam. 
So I intervened here as a non-European, maybe obviously from the accent, and as a US citizen, and also as a black scholar and sociologist who has conducted ethnographic research on race, racism, and migration in France for over a decade. So in my brief remarks, I'm gonna speak a bit about France and then also connect that to, to broader Europe. For many, many years ago, when I was working on my proposal for what was to be my dissertation and then years afterward, my first book, on children of immigrants from former French colonies in the Maghreb and questions of cultural citizenship, inclusion and exclusion, and racial and ethnic identity. I remember meeting with a prominent French social scientist who told me definitively that race does not mean anything in France, especially when compared to the United States, and that terms such as white or black would not mean anything to anyone in French society. Yet when I moved to France and began my research, I found quite the opposite. Race, although not officially marked or acknowledged by the French state, uh, marks individuals as, as distinct and creates and reinforces a racial order or hierarchy. This anecdote reveals what my co-panelist David Theo Goldberg refers to as a quote-unquote political racelessness of Europe, or the ways in which race is often framed outside of Europe and never within it. Other societies or regions of the world, like the United States, can be racist, but France or the, race or the rest of Europe cannot be. Throughout my many interviews and years of fieldwork with children of Maghreban or with African immigrants, my interlocutors conveyed not only how they are racialized and the implications of that racialization, but also how whiteness is often seen as default or the norm in French society as regards to who a French person is or can, or can be understood as a white person. To give one example from my research, one of my interlocutors, Kareem, a 32-year-old journalist of Algerian origin who lives in a banlieue or a suburban outskirt of Paris, told me, quote, people still see being French as being white. Everything is fine so long as Maghreban individuals are relegated to being gangsters or criminals. But once they become doctors like my wife, then more and more people feel threatened and people get even more racist, end quote. The visibility of Black, Maghreban, and other quote-unquote visible minorities challenges conceptions of French society as white. Moreover, Kareem and others live in a French Republican society that not only disavows race and ethnicity as basis, as basis for identity, but also communities based on these identities, or la communitarianisme in French. But Kareem believes that this is only true or applied for racial and ethnic minorities. Quote, Whites can just be individuals in France. They can just be French, end quote. This is reminiscent of Franz Fanon's insights of how whiteness and blackness are co-consecutive of each other and how black is positioned outside of being French. In 1967's Black Skin, White Mask, he writes, quote, what I'm asserting here is that the European has a fixed concept of the Negro and there is nothing more exasperating than to be asked how long have you been in France? You speak French so well, end quote. Another insight on Frenchness as synonymous with whiteness can be gleaned from former French president Charles de Gaulle, who in a 1959 letter to a confidant wrote, quote, it is very good there are yellow Frenchmen, black Frenchmen, brown Frenchmen. They prove that France is open to all races and that she has a universal mission but it is good on conditions they remain a small minority. Otherwise, France would no longer be France. We are, after all, primarily a European people of the white race 
Greek and Latin culture and the Christian religion, end quote. So by thinking about white identity or whiteness as seen as default in French society relies upon, of course, a broader construction of European identity or Europeanness as white. As white supremacy is global, considering how it operates in France reveals as France is also part of a global racial and ethnic hierarchy. As scholar Fatima El-Taib has noted, quote, without Europe, there would be no race and without race and racism, there would be no Europe, end quote. Moreover, Europeanness is constructed as white and therefore non-white is non-European, which anthropologist Nicolas Gianova refers to as quote unquote, the disposability of black and brown lives. So we should be clear how whiteness is seen as a norm or default, not just in France, but throughout Europe. Whiteness becomes Europe's racial grammar as Europe imagines itself as homogenous and colorblind. Research on societies as varied as the Nordic countries, the UK, Switzerland, the Netherlands, or Italy has shown how despite having ostensibly colorblind frameworks or not measuring or acknowledge racial, racial and ethnic categories, the UK being the exception in this, in this particular regard, whiteness and national identities and societal belonging are linked. Due to a silence and silent scene of race in Europe, Islam emerges as a cultural threat to a quote-unquote secular civilized Europe, and the presence of Muslims is seen to erode European identity. This partially explains why, for example, having halal food in supermarkets or removing pork from school cafeteria menus generates so much controversy. Moreover, racial and ethnic difference is often framed using a migration lens, in other words, in terms of a quote-unquote newness of diversity or multiculturalism, rather than through a thorough understanding about the construction of Europe relied on colonial domination and, and related, excuse me, subsequent migration to the metropole. Non-whiteness is attached to immigration and its colonial history is purposefully, purposefully minimized or ignored. So to say that whiteness is in crisis in Europe is to identify how Europe positions itself in opposition to quote unquote race people as if white itself is not a race. In other words, as the old Faulkner quote goes, the past is not dead, it is not even past. Yet Europe is continually investing in, in minimizing its past, especially its colonial history. The scholarship by Trika Keaton, Stephen Small and others have emphasized Black Europe or encouraged us to think seriously about the long history and presence of Black people across the continent. Among other things, such scholarship also involves a post-colonial and even decolonial perspective as Small writes in his 2017 book, quote, we are here because you were there, end quote. In other words, we cannot understand the conditions of white supremacy and Black people across Europe without reckoning excuse me, with Europe's history of colonial and imperial role. This moves us beyond solely an immigrant-focused lens to grappling with how actual citizens are marginalized across Europe because of their racial and ethnic origin. Give two more quick examples. I thought about this question uh, when thinking about uh, Francis, or France, the question of France's racial and colonial logic during the 2018 World Cup victory. Such a win by a team with many children of immigrant players diminished the fact that outside of the team's win, uh, Mape or Poba or many other players would not be seen as French or identified as French by others. They instead are seen as outside of French society, not consecutive of it. 
even though their quote-unquote origins are directly a result of France's colonial project abroad. I couldn't help but wonder how different the narrative would have been had France not won, despite what French ambassador to the U.S., Gerald Gerald Arad, said in response to comedian Trevor Noah, that whiteness is not the only definition of being French. Rather, French society insists upon the singularity of Frenchness, but only when it suits them. And there are similar examples we can identify across Europe. I also thought about this construction of European as white with the latest cover of the French satirical magazine, Charlie Hebdo, about Meghan and Harry, which depicted Queen Elizabeth with her knee on the neck of Meghan Markle with a caption, quote, why Meghan left Buckingham with Meghan's response being, quote, I can't breathe, a horrific mockery of how George Floyd, an African-American man, was killed by police officer Jarek Chauvin in Minneapolis in May of last year. So I want to end quickly with the reminder that the European Parliament issued a declaration stating Black Lives Matter last June in connection with Floyd's death. Yet what does it mean, what, what does this mean in the face of documented racism and discrimination against Black Europeans? So to come back to this question of whether or not Europe is white, we should also also ask why we do not also see it as black. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, now invite Nima Begum to share her thoughts with us. Hi, um, hi everyone. Uh, thank you to the European Institute for this invitation. Um, and I'm really thrilled to be sharing this panel uh, with Jean and David. And um, thank you uh, to Jean for her contribution um, just now. Um, so I'll probably touch up, uh, touch on a lot of the things that Jean has already mentioned. So uh, my PhD was on British ethnic minority attitudes to EU membership and integration. Uh, so I did interviews and focus groups with ethnic minorities, um, mainly Black and Asian people um, in the UK for their motivations for supporting uh, to remain in the EU or to leave the EU in the 2016 EU referendum. So uh, before I get on to some of those motivations for supporting uh, remain or leave, um, I was just going to talk about the EU and what it represented in the referendum and how remain was framed uh, compared to Brexit. So the EU's motto has been united in diversity. Um, but what became clear from the um, testimonies of my interviewees is that this diversity for many uh, of the racialized minorities represented a national diversity or uh, diversity in Christian denomination coming together and not necessarily a racial or religious diversity. In 2012, the EU uh, won the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, Peace Prize for advancing causes of peace, democracy and human rights. But this didn't necessarily sit well with um, some of the uh, racialized minorities that I interviewed, especially when they were talking about uh, the refugee crisis and the EU's policing of um, refugees seeking um, entry into Europe. So support for Brexit was generally framed as being white nationalist, um, nostalgia for the British Empire, and even racist and xenophobic. Um, and this was a reason that a lot of uh, ethnic minorities voted to remain. But there wasn't necessarily agreement with 
remain and being part of the EU as the progressive alternative to Brexit. So what are the experiences of uh, people of colour in Europe and to what extent do ethnic minorities in Britain and wider um, parts of Europe feel European? So what I found generally was that there was a weak European identity among um, the British ethnic minorities. This may not be all that surprising because European identity tends to be weak, weaker among the British population compared to other European countries. And this is seen as a uh, big driver of uh, the majority of uh, Britons voting to leave the European Union. But a lot of the racialized ethnic minorities didn't identify as European and were more likely to see this as a white racial identity compared to British, which was seen as a more civic identity. They also expressed that experiences of racism and Islamophobia were more pronounced in other countries in Europe compared to Britain. Um, so as an ethnic minority traveling to other parts of Europe, we often have to ask ourselves, Will I be the one of the few ethnic minority or people of colour there? Will I be safe there? And how racist is it there? So another issue that came up in ethnic minorities' um, perceptions of Europe was this idea of fortress Europe and the border politics of the European Union, where we have, or I mean, we're no longer in the EU, but in the EU there's free movement, um, within, but borders around Europe are heavily policed um, with the refugee crisis and with Frontex policing of Europe's borders. Um, we saw thousands of refugees drowning in the Mediterranean, um, refugees um, and uh, volunteers seeking to help refugees have been criminalized and uh, punished under, under, under anti-trafficking legislation. Um, and there are also perceptions of the EU as um, discriminating um, against ethnic minorities, particularly um, in seeing Islamophobia being reproduced as at an elite level. Um, so for a lot of the um, discourse around the progressiveness of the EU, particularly in upholding women's rights, um, some, some of the Muslim women that I interviewed uh, referred to uh, niqab and hijab and burkini bans and how the rights of Muslim women to religious dress and expressing their religious identity was curbed at, at different um, EU countries and um, wasn't necessarily being protected at an EU level. Um, the EU was also seen as protectionist and Sorry, someone has it. Um, I'll just ignore that. Um, so the EU was seen as protectionist and putting developing economies at a disadvantage, particularly with policies like uh, the common agricultural policy and the subsidies to European farmers. So there were also perceptions of Europe itself as a white formation, which is uh, what Jean has referred to. So in 2012, the European Commission released an advert to promote EU enlargement. So in it, we see a white European woman dressed in the yellow of the EU stars walking through an empty warehouse before she has to fend off um, three um, non-white men who are about to attack her. So we see a Chinese man appears doing Kung Fu, then an 
Indian man wearing a turban, wielding a knife, and then a black Brazilian man doing capoeira. So as she faces down three men, the white European woman then multiplies to form a circle around them before the men put their weapons down and the woman's yellow outfit turns into the stars of the EU. And the video ends with the slogan, the more we are, the stronger we are. Click here to learn more about EU enlargement. So this advert was put out to um, basically to raise awareness of the quote-unquote threat of the rising economies of China, India and Brazil and that the EU needed to enlarge or needed to protect itself from the rising economies outside the EU. Um, so this has, has very strong racist and colonial tropes of the white woman as the nation, or in this case, the supranation as under threat from immigrant men. Um, so Kinval says, as an external, internal enemy, the other is the cultural and religious other, who is not only blamed for the imagined ills of European society, but who is also a body that European society needs protection from. The other becomes the source of anxiety and fear, but also of anger, revulsion and hate. This longing for pure identities cannot be divorced from Europe's imperial past and race-induced understandings of whiteness. So in responses to um, some of the material that I showed in my focus groups uh, with um, racialized minorities in Britain, though I showed some Remain campaign material that included language of the European family and European values, uh, with one of my participants responding, it was a European family that colonized most of the world and our countries outside Europe backwards because they don't have European values. Um, so for a lot of these participants, they felt that um, intimating European values or reference to the Euro European family um, was synonymous with um, some of the colonial tropes around um, uh, some of the tropes that were used to colonize most of the world, the white man's burden, Europe being more civilized and, and so on. Um, and to this day, we have monument, monuments to colonialism throughout Europe, um, including in Belgium, where the EU headquarters are, there are still statues to King Leopold II, despite the brutal colonization of the Congo. Um, and there was some criticism of um, Europe and how it came to form after uh, the Second World War with European countries coming together and pooling their resources after many of their colonies had gained um, independence or were on their way to gaining independence. So um, I think that's probably all of my time. So um, I'll leave it there, but I look forward to um, answering your question. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nima. Um, we now turn to David Theo Goldberg. I think you might have to- Sorry, unmute. yeah, I thought I'd unmute myself. Uh, I said, good morning, everybody. It's uh, California, not so sunny California here uh, in Southern California. It's a pleasure to be on this panel with Jean Beeman and uh, Naima Begum. Um, and thanks to the European Institute for putting um, this together, um, this Ides of March, which may or may not, may or may not be a significant date given what we're uh, discussing. So um, as Jean intimated, I, I want to um, 
think a little bit from the point of view of the historical over here, because I think the historical layers uh, count quite deeply. In establishing itself as a modern coherent entity from the 1450s onwards, uh, according to Dennis Hay, papal letters of 1452 kind of established the notion of a contemporary or a modern European uh, we, a coherent sort of sense of a, of a, a whole scale belonging to a larger scaled Europe. Uh, modern Europe, in this sense, imagined and conceived its own Europeanity as constitutively white, as increasingly self-consciously configuring those having fully-fledged membership exclusively as white from, from the get-go. Um, but as Stuart Hall was known to remark again and again, self-formations require identification in terms of insisting on what he called constitutive outsiders, those in but not of those present that need not, uh, that need to be made present absent, seen unseen, visibly invisible. Uh, the belonging need outsiders as a contrast persistently reestablishing their own belonging. Look, mama, we're not them. So these constitutive outsiders from the outset were Jews, Moors, Blacks, uh, the indigenous of uh, the New World of, of the Americas, otherwise known as Indias, notice that they all ratio-religiously identified, some as heathen, some as having a religious configuration different than Europe took itself uh, to have at the time. And that shift from the religious as the dominant to the racial over and, you know, hundreds of years um, led to the way in which the racial took up the kind of narrativizing, self-identifying work of the religious uh, that had hitherto been dominant uh, in the medieval period. So Europe takes itself from the outset to be constitutively white, European racially understood, but also and growingly laced with those considered uh, not to be not white or European uh, in this mutual identification. There are thick histories here. I don't have time to detail and perhaps we can come back to them in the discussion, but let me point to uh, a number of quick considerations. First, whiteness and its negations in their multiplicitous definings have never been singular, shifting within, across, over time, speaking to some of the questions that have already been posed. Note the insistent singularity of whiteness in the self-characterizing modality, even though it's never uh, singular, and the multiplicities of its othering negations, despite the fact that all are never singular or singularly conceived. Second, in, in insisting on its constitutive whiteness, and so the absence of those not not in Europe, but of it, European self-telling effectively erases, or at the very least minimizes its histories of enslavement within, in Europe itself. Jeans have made some mention of this in passing. Slavery, enslaving, even the slave trade are deemed to have happened elsewhere, even as they were happening on the European landscape then as now. European landscape unmarked, you might say, by the stain. Europeans were involved, but Europe apparently not. How then to explain both the presence of slaves in households of Amsterdam or Paris or London before abolition 
in those respective societies or the impacts of the Berlin Conference that Neymar sort of referenced and how to explain the visual markers on European buildings, for example, of slave reliefs on Bordeaux's buildings. Uh, if you walk around Bordeaux, you can sort of see these reliefs kind of etched into the buildings or harpers, gapers over the pharmacies of Amsterdam, et cetera, et cetera, or signs of the fact that Europe was never just white. Third, a point I will generalize in coming back to it after some further points when I type this um, up, it registered pints, which is perhaps indicative of where we are at the moment. When the Nationalist Party took power and coherently formalized apartheid in South Africa from the late 1940s and into the 1950s, the signs on park benches, so this is in apartheid South Africa, right? On park benches and beaches, etc., was uh, not whites or non-whites only, so in the 1950s, it was Europeans blankers, the Afrikaans for whites, only, or non-Europeans knee blankers only. South Africa, European southern province at the time, knew all too well Europeans were exclusively white. This changed in the 1960s as anti-apartheid joined civil rights movements and South Africa became Europe's, Europe's prodigal child. There's, a, of course, a good deal more to be said about this. So to stretch some of these, um, uh, these general points, Europe has never been just white. Whiteness had not only to be established, but it requires serious and sustained labor, conceptual, cultural, policy-wise, force invoking, indeed to maintain and reinforce, to secure itself as white. Euro-whiteness, second, uh, now fifth, I guess, is a discursive or ideological commitment. David, have we lost you? Hello? Can I just check that it's not me that's been lost? Can you hear me? Yeah, I, I can hear you. Yeah, okay. I think okay. you might have lost Dave. I think okay. David might be frozen. It looks like it. Well, I mean, this is one of the interesting things about conducting seminars online. The wonderful pluses we get to have all three of you, um, even though you remain in far-flung places. Um, but unfortunately, we do have these momentary gaps. Um, I think we will get David back shortly. Um, perhaps we should now move on to begin our conversation. Um, David, are you back? Ah, oh, you're I'm back with us. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> Perfect. Well, and then I'm going to turn everything right back to you. Okay. Thank you. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm not sure where that came from. No, no, don't um, worry. So um, I was in the middle of talking about glissant. Your whiteness is a discursive ideological commitment that structure shapes, reproduces materializations of Europe as white. Glissant, originally from Martinique, uh, remarks, Christopher Columbus, the first colonist, set out not in the name of a nation. He set out in the name of an idea. The vilification of post-colonial critique in, in Germany, now France, etc., so contemporarily, is a contemporary expression of this. As Gurgi Watyango, my f um, wonderful colleague, has long reminded, uh, reminded us, it is the imagination, and one can add culture, that also repeatedly needs what he calls decolonizing, uh, again, a, a, a term that one has to sort of think about more carefully. Um, and that's not to say it only requires decolonizing, uh, but it does require that. You could say a kind of un- or de-whitening. The critical resistance, and this is the sixth point, to Euro-whiteness is taken to be resisted as 
the rejection of Europeanity itself. That is, by defense of Europeans sensing their whiteness, their power and privilege under Eurasia. If you seek to be European, the insistence goes, you have to be, you have to become as best as possible like us Europeans, if never able quite. Euro-whiteness, in short, is the enduring strategy to maintain a power and control that it's claimed always to have, an old story in new or renewing terms. <clears throat> and uh, all but last point, Europe, given its self-composed and outstretched or stretched out modernity, is not and never has been just the landmass of cartographically bordered Europe, of fortress imagined Europe. Europe is all that Europe has insisted at any point on what with all the italicizing and scare quoting, uh, I will call penetrating, on having extension over, on extracting from. And that extension is definitely, definitively not white, neither supposedly there if one were in Europe, uh, nor here, as both all are interfacingly, interactively co-composed, co-constituted, no matter how in denial white Europe may be about it or itself. As Walt Whitman wrote, I am made of multitudes and Bob Dylan is now singing out quite loudly. And that's both individually and, and group form, those multitudes kind of interactively. So is Europe white? Dominant, if shrinking, hopefully Europe likes to think, insist of itself. So uh, think of itself. Uh, so even as, especially perhaps because it refuses to acknowledge that it never has been. Thank you. Well, thank you so much to Jean and Nima and David, especially for bearing with us with the hiccups on Zoom. Um, you've all made some fascinating presentations and we are delighted that we can have this very important conversation with all of you. Um, I want to make sure that we have lots of time to engage with our audience because this is, of course, our main aim. Um, and in looking at the various questions that have been proposed, I wonder if perhaps it might be helpful to begin by talking a little bit about the underlying concepts that we are discussing. Um, I know, David, you've already had some opportunity to clarify them, uh, but just to bring together a few of the questions and then put them to all three of you, uh, perhaps to add a bit further clarification and elaboration. Um, we have Andrew Lowen asking the question, to answer is Europe white, won't we first need to work out what is Europe and what is white? Um, and aren't they both social constructs with ill-defined and porous boundaries? Uh, following on from that, we have Liam Kelly asking the question, why academic intellectuals continue uh, to focus on the false concept of separate races? Surely they know there's no scientific basis for categorizing human groups. And then obviously these are basic points to want to clarify before we broaden our conversation. And I would really just welcome all three of you who've obviously engaged with these concepts in your own work uh, to speak to those points more generally. Anybody wish to go first or should we go in the order that you originally spoke? I can start unless others want to. Um, Thanks, yeah, so uh, first I just want to thank my co-panelists for their really provocative uh, remarks that I've been taking lots of copious notes on. Um, so I think the question of sort of, you know, why do we still use or why are we using this quote unquote false concept of separate races? 
I think the point to keep in mind here, um, you know, I'll just speak for myself, is not to say that race is not a social construct, but the whole point of the social construct or thinking about race as a social construct is not negating the real material consequences of the social construction. So the point is not to say that there actually are, or to, 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 make, to make the point that there are biological differences among what we consider races, but rather to think about how humans have, you know, categorized and continually continue to categorize different human beings and then attach particular meanings to those classifications. And, you know, all of these processes are social, but of course they have very tangible and real meaning. So that's sort of the, the point I would say around the concept of race and why I think it's still helpful to use it today. Um, but of course, I think also that we the concept of what Europe is is also a social social political construction. And so, are we talking about Europe as we understand the geographical boundaries today? Are we talking about you know the question of empire? Are we talking about the EU, which of course is a particular political construction of what Europe is, which of course doesn't you know cover all of what we might geographically consider as Europe? So, I think part of what we need to I think part of what is like helpful in this conversation is to always be mindful of the mere in ways that we define, you know, whiteness, Europe, European boundaries, um, and understanding these questions. Thank you very much. Um, Nima, David, would you like to come in on these points? Yeah, I'd, I'd just like to echo um, Jean's points on the question of um, race and that it doesn't, obviously, it doesn't necessarily, yeah, it doesn't have scientific basis. Um, and it is, um, has been debunked as a scientific category. And we know that there's more genetic variation in what we term races than between races. Or, um, but as Jean was saying, race still has very material consequences. And we, um, we are referring to processes of racialization. So what I say, usually is that race isn't real but racism is um, and we I mean we know that human life and civilization originates in Africa but that doesn't um, mean that racism doesn't exist and not everyone accepts that race that we we're all Africans essentially and um, actually that is often used to um, undermine claims of racism that um, race doesn't actually exist when it has real consequences for people's lives and um, it has material consequences. Um, and I mean, money is socially constructed, but it still has value and it still has meaning. Um, so we can't just say, well, it's not real. So um, how do we? Um, and um, there is obviously a danger of perpetuating or reifying races. Um, but um, I think what we're doing here is thinking about processes of um, racialization and how different groups are constru constructed and how certain differences are presented as innate rather when they're kind of projected by society. Um, so I think this actually relates to another question on whiteness and Eastern Euro Europeans. So in, um, in the UK and um, in other parts of Europe, um, there's been significant racialization and stigmatization of Eastern Europeans. Um, there's research conducted with Eastern Europeans uh, uh, from Poland, Bulgaria, Romania in the UK who say, we didn't know we were Eastern European until we came to the UK. We just thought of ourselves as European. Um, so um, what I'm trying to say is we're the, um, 
Europe, uh, the core has always been thought of as Western Europe, Northern Europe and as the center of civilization and the proximity to Europeanness um, denotes proximity to whiteness. So we see um, the whiteness of people from Eastern Europe being questioned and negated. Um, and this is something that's been um, used a lot, particularly in Britain, in stigmatizing Eastern Europeans and the kind of um, racial hate crimes that we saw around the referendum that also targeted, targeted Eastern Europeans, not just um, Black and Asian people, and especially because of the way that they've been racialized in Britain and other parts of Western Europe. Thank you very much, Nima. And just to clarify, Nima was actually responding to a question from Moritz Neubert, um, asking in the context of Brexit, uh, whether it is possible to discern a racialized hierarchy within whiteness as well. Um, so thank you very much, Nima, for that. David. Uh, yeah, just to add to the things that uh, have been said, um, you know, uh, race and what gets characterized in the name of race has never been static. Um, it changes historically over time. So if you just look at the kind of dominant senses from the roughly the 16th century onwards, um, bloodlines, well, kinship, lineage, um, species, subspecies, which is the meaning we, we attempt to attach to it today, um, and it, you know, I'm, I'm always a bit bemused um, by the, the question about its unscientificity, excuse me, um, <laughs> stumbling over the very term itself. Um, uh, and, you know, I think the more pressing question is to ask what is the meaning of race historically at a given moment in time? And more pressingly, what is the work that it's doing politically and socially at that point in time um, to shape um, political and social landscapes, uh, possibilities, opportunities, and their lack um, within um, uh, configurations of, of political life? Um, you know, you could say the same thing, um, maybe a bit less pressingly, um, about any nation state. I mean, it's a social construct too, right? Um, uh, there's no naturalness to Britain as such or the home countries or England or France or Amsterdam and so on and so on. They're shaped uh, by people coming together under specific kinds of histories. Um, and indeed, the very notion of Europe, as I was trying to sort of gesture um, at, at the outset, um, you know, came to be a, a self-conception, obviously linked to a kind of Greek, a set of Greek mythologies, but in, in the middle of the 15th century. And it's interesting that it emerges at that time exactly coterminous with the moment at which race as a self-understanding becomes um, a part of um, emerging European lingua francas, right? Um, as, a, as a term to understand sort of where people commonly come from or what they belong to and so on and so forth. Um, just about the sense of East Europeans and the changing notion of whiteness. Yes, of course, um, one should also understand um, in relation to this history that um, Jews, Irish, uh, Polish in the 19th century were characterized as black explicitly. 
um, Polish, you know, during the Brexit debate were, were targeted as people who didn't belong. Uh, there were signs all across uh, Britain of, you know, Polish go home, Polish you don't belong here, uh, Polish get out and so on and so forth, sometimes explicitly racially formulated, right? So there's a way in which one needs to look at the workings of these configurations uh, at different, different points of time. If you're interested in the 19th century history around these configurations and blackness, um, the work of Sander Gilman sort of has looked quite extensively, at, among others, at, the, at, at, at those kinds of uh, conceptions. Thank you very much. Uh, we're getting questions fast and furious, which is wonderful to see. Um, you've obviously provoked wonderful thoughts amongst our audience. Um, as before, I'm just going to gather up a few on a similar theme um, and then put them back to the panel. Um, I've noted a couple focusing on decolonization narratives. I see, if I just find it back here, Lisa Byers, an LSE alumnus in social and cultural psychology, asked the question, do you think institutional and societal decolonization narratives are enough for a cultural mindset to happen or is more required. Um, then we also have, where am I down here? Uh, Sultan Duhan from Boston University um, asking if you could say a bit more about rethinking decolonizing Europe from within institutions of knowledge production and would like to know a bit more about how um, you would look at that. And again, general question to all of the panelists. I know these are big themes. Can you hear me? Yes? Okay, well, Jean, David, Nima, any thoughts on the decolonization points? Yeah, I, I can I can come in on that. Um, I think uh, as far as decolonization goes in institutional settings or in society more generally, um, I think Lisa might be right that there is a um, cultural mind shift um, that needs to take place. I um, think that a lot of European countries, um, and including the UK, haven't reckoned with the colonial past um, and the history of colonisation, um, exploitation, looting, mass murder, rape and things that took place under um, colonization um, under the British Empire and different European empires. Um, and, and we see, saw a recent YouGov poll that a lot of the majority of the British public think that the British Empire is something to be proud of or that it was a force for good um, rather than bad. So I think there needs to be an overhaul of how we think about um, the empire and what it represented and the histories of different um, parts of the world and how, um, and the legacy of that colonization. Um, but those are really uncomfortable um, conversations to be had and already we're seeing around removal of statues of um, slave owners and so on, causing a lot of, um, controversy but I think it's because it gets to the heart of what how people construct the nation and how we think of 
Britain as um, defeating the Nazis in the Second World War and um, and saving um, the Jews and, and and so on. And these kind of um, criticisms don't sit well, especially of Winston Churchill and um, his role in the Bengal famine, for example, um, because of the way that Churchill has been constructed um, and um, the way that different nations in Europe construct themselves as being progressive and liberal and um, upholding human rights and so on it doesn't really sit well with the history of those um, countries and the way that they colonize most of the world. Thank you. Um, I have a question. Yeah, I can, um, oh, oh, I was going to add just um, if, if, uh, if you have time, but um, yeah, I completely agree with that. I just wanted to um, also echo that this question, I think of statues of like removing statues or even the just like not the actual removal of statues, but like the discussion of how we might remove statues, I think also reflects the ways in which, you know, Europe continues to construct itself as homogenous and having a very homogenous identity and history as Nima already mentioned. So part of the issue is that people, it's not so much a sort of erasing of history and sort of erasing of the constructed narrative of particular European histories. And that sort of being part of the, 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 the real struggle when it comes to decolonization. Could I add uh, a couple of things too? I mean, when one talks of decolonizing, which of course has you know, become perhaps again really popular, um, <clears throat> one should uh, remind ourselves that Europe has not divested itself of all its colonies to begin with. Uh, so it's not just a uh, you know, a memory historiography that we're talking about over here. Uh, it was part of my point about Europe uh, being not just the, you know, the uh, taken for granted landscape of Europe as it currently exists, which itself is shifting, um, but is its stretched out sort of uh, spatial formation uh, as well. There are many uh, provinces of France, for example, that aren't within the, um, you know, Euro borderlands of, of, of France, so to speak. And so uh, in talking about decolonizing, there's a real undertaking to think about what that means for those sites that are um, of but not in Europe, right? Um, uh, first, second, um, so the notion of decolonizing the imagination um, is important or decolonizing the way in which we think about these things, um, you know, undertaking to extend the critique of the long histories by which our imaginations uh, and conceptual apparatus have been formed. Uh, and, uh, and, and those are incredibly uh, in, in important un undertakings. At the same time, there's also an archive, all too often overlooked, that Adam Gedichu's fantastic book, um, World Making After Empire, sort of reminds us uh, that, you know, we're not in this for the first time, right? I mean, there are generations before us that have been at work uh, and have uh, constituted an archive, an important archive to draw on in uh, the relation between um, geographic decolonization and de decolonizing the imaginary. Uh, and then the third is just to uh, recall, because it's the 20th anniversary um, of Dipesh Chakrabarti's Provincializing Europe, and the ways in which we think about temporality, in the ways we think about spatiality, spatial geographies, and so on, are also important in our 
constituting of Europe as the center of the universe. <laughs> um, uh, put it in those terms. I'll leave it at that. Thanks. Thank you very much. Um, I have another series of questions focused explicitly on whiteness. Um, I'm so sorry if I'm saying your name wrong. Apologies. Uh, Bolaya Balogun from the University of Sheffield um, asks if David could speak a bit more about what he described as Euro whiteness and its relevance. Yaz Niyar from Brunel University um, asks how whiteness sits in and among ideas of post-racial logic. And Didier Muller from the MSc Human Rights here at LSE um, asks if the idea of European whiteness is an intergenerational issue. In other words, is it more pervasive, he asks, among older European citizens than younger? And again, wide open to the panelists. I mean, I can start just with a quick point about Euro whiteness. I mean, the, the point there was to just point out that European and whiteness have been, Europeanness and whiteness have been co-constituted throughout its history, even as those sensibilities uh, and, and senses, uh, the meanings that have been established in their name have transformed historically uh, over time. And so the point about uh, park benches in apartheid South Africa um, being referenced as whites own, uh, as European owned in the 1950s and non-European only for, for blacks. There were many fewer black benches, although there were far more uh, black people um, sort of at the time uh, is a sensibility I grew up with and required a kind of purging, right? Um, and got transformed into whites only and blacks only by the mid 1960s. And, and there, you know, in that making and unmaking and remaking, you see the way in which historically these, um, these senses get socially constituted in relation to the driving, not just local politics, but a more global politics um, sort of, of of the moment. And so Euro whiteness establishes itself in different ways at different times and indeed in different parts of Europe, right? Um, given uh, the sensibilities that get established historically and get transformed over time uh, within Europe. There are questions about the relation of, uh, you know, is, is Eastern Europe more racist than Western Europe and so on. I don't, I'm not sure that's the right way to pose the question. I mean, racism expresses itself differently in different parts of the world. And we should, we should address it in terms of the ways it's expressing itself in those, in those parts in order to get at the nuances and the political sort of manifestations, even as racism anywhere is held up by racism elsewhere. I mean, racism in one place will, um, only continue to exist with the force it continues to exist precisely because there is racism elsewhere um, and vice versa. And I think it's important always to understand that. Jean or Nima, would you like to come in on these questions? Uh, yeah, I, I can come in on Jazz's question on um, whiteness and post-racial logic. I think um, in in Europe especially, the idea of race um, is so taboo um, and is really not um, spoken of in the way sometimes that we do maybe in the US or in uh, in the UK, um, 
where um, there's this kind of narrative of anti-Semitism, fascism, racism having been defeated in the Second World War and this new Europe emerging that's um, post-racial or even um, anti-racist. Um, so I think um, the ubiquity of whiteness and the kind of whiteness of Europeanness is so visible, becomes invisible in that um, it's something that's unspoken or um, not critically engaged with. Um, and I think it has a large part to do with um, the post-racial logics that racism is no longer an issue and it's something that has been defeated in the past and it's not an ongoing specter um, within Europe. Um, and I think as Jean referred to earlier about racism being seen as an American issue or in other parts of the world compared to Europe, I think um, is consistent with this, with this post-racial logic. Um, I think someone has a question on generation and how that affects, um, sorry, I just saw it a second ago. Um, what's been um, really quite worrying is the kind of right wing, um, some of the racist movements in Europe, including Generation Identitaire and um, this, uh, a lot of ideas around white genocide and that um, non-white um, people and people of color are starting to outnumber white people and that Europe will no longer be white in um, some years time, which is um, a completely racist conspiracy theory, but it's something that's being, um, I think, disseminated to younger people within Europe. And um, uh, so it, might not have it might be manifesting manifesting in different ways with different generations and the kind of racism and backlash that we're seeing against certain movements like black lives matter and so on might be radicalizing younger people into believing that um whiteness is at threat and europeanness is at threat as um and uh that um there are these kind of conspiracy theories um, circulating um, about um, whiteness um, reducing and the white populations reducing and being replaced by um, racialized minorities um, that I think are filtering through to different um, younger groups as well. Yeah, and just to quickly add on that, because I completely agree with what my co-panelists said, I think I would actually put the, together the question of sort of the role of whiteness and post-racial logic with the question around intergenerational uh, changes or effects or whatever, to say that I actually think that part of the way that uh, our post-racial logic operates is to imagine that um, racism is something of the past. So then people who were born, you know, 10 years ago are necessarily going to be less racist than people born 80 years ago, et cetera, et cetera. And I see this both in the United States and, and in Europe. And so I think they actually go together um, because we then miss how racism is, is constantly present regardless of how old people are, uh, as Nima just uh, identified recent moments that have happened uh, in Europe. And I think also just the question of kind of what I was trying to say with my earlier remarks of whiteness being in crisis, part of it is, I mean, at least especially in the case of France, for example, is this sort of paranoia 
of France being taken over by Muslims, of Western Europe being taken over by Muslims. Again, like the demographic data doesn't begin to show any of that. And that's also, again, another racist conspiracy, but I think it speaks to um, the sort of, um, the paranoia or the sort of ways in which whiteness continually in crisis throughout Europe. Can I just quickly add to that? I think that's exactly right. I mean, both, both Jean and uh, Naima pointed to something. Um, you know, perhaps more pressing even than whiteness is what George Lipsitz has characterized as a possessive investment in whiteness, right? So that um, in a world which is only 10 or 11% white globally, right? I mean, that possessive investment should be telling us something about power and privilege uh, and access and maintenance uh, of the goodies for a very small proportion of the, of, of the global population. And, you know, getting over or getting beyond race is about that as much as it is about anything else. <clears throat> thank you both. Um, thank you all very much. Um, I'm actually going to be slightly naughty um, and take advantage of my position as chair uh, to ask my own question at this point. And of, of course, as we have lived through the pandemic, we have had yet another whole series of, of evidence emerge of the ways in which we continue to have issues around racialization and structures of hierarchy and so on. And I wondered if you all might offer some comments on what critical whiteness can tell us about how the COVID pandemic, for instance, has disproportionately affected minorities um, and indeed even the development of the vaccine disproportionately being tested, for instance, on those who are, are uh, white and not as extensively on those from more minority backgrounds. Uh, so I, I can come in here. So I'm currently at the University of Manchester. We're conducting a large scale survey of ethnic and religious minorities in Britain's um, experiences of COVID. Um, so uh, we know that uh, black and Asian people in the UK are more likely to die of the disease, um, more likely to contract it. And um, this has sometimes been um, kind of explained using racial logics that um, there's something inherently um, within minority communities that's causing this when we know it's a lot to do with racialization, different um, household uh, composition and, and so on. Um, so I think there are some kind of racist logics that are playing out throughout COVID. Um, there's been um, talk of vitamin D deficiencies among South Asian communities and that making them more um, susceptible to the virus. And um, also when talking about uh, vaccine take up and the reluctance of black and Asian communities, um, it's so far the data that we have is quite flawed um, and not re really representative. So we don't know the extent of vaccine hesitancy amongst ethnic minorities, but this is something that has been uh, circulated quite widely that um, and is being used to stigmatize minority communities that black people aren't taking the vaccine or Asian people aren't taking the vaccine. Um, and uh, it's also in a weird way being kind of manipulated to um, question the allegiances or the um, of ethnic minorities and how seriously they're taking the national threat and questioning the belonging of certain groups who aren't taking the vaccine and not working in the national interests and um and so on so i think a lot of these things are playing out um in the pandemic and 
not enough has been done to protect minority communities who are most at risk. And I think, as you referred to Jennifer, there are structural um, causes of these with um, ethnic minority communities being more likely to be in occupations um, and on the front line on the NHS and so on, um, uh, delivery drivers and, and so on, and people in more working class or deprived areas um, being more at risk to the virus. Um, but uh, the kind of policing and around COVID has disproportionately affected ethnic minorities um, with uh, kind of lockdown restrictions and how that's used against certain minority communities. Um, so yeah, there's a lot there, I think, to unpack. Um, I would just briefly add, uh, in the case of France, I think what's interesting in these questions is it also, rates, it also relates to a sort of a data issue, right? So, you know, because France does not collect racialized data, there's all these other proxies that, are, that, that we can use that are used as a geography. And then it's very clear that there are, you know, racial and ethnic disparities in terms of, you know, who's an essential worker, who's able to work from home, et cetera, et cetera, who's more likely to be infected with COVID, et cetera, et cetera. And then I think also, um, it also relates to ongoing issues affecting these communities, such as hyper surveillance by the police, police you know, it, the way that the police have, um, you know, uh, carte blanche to police populations already hyper police around um, in, in the guise of sort of protecting people against COVID. Uh, but more generally, I also think what's interesting about this question is to think about the role of, think about the sort of Think about this globally in terms of the United States and Europe versus the rest of the world. And I've been really stunned with, um, despite, I'll speak from the case of the United States, despite the fact that we've, I think in many ways, greatly mishandled um, lockdowns related to the pandemic, we still have had a, a lot of access to vaccines. And that only, I think, among other things, reflects a global racial hierarchy that we can't ignore. Um, yeah, I'll just add, thank you, Jennifer. I think that it's an important um, question because it, points exactly to the way in which uh, existing structures of hierarchy, of um, um, privilege, of access um, got surfaced as a result of, um, both surfaced and reproduced and extended uh, as, as a result of the, um, the virus. Um, so, um, you know, those who are less well-placed within societies who historically are those who are, have been particularly in Europe racially identified, um, right, for whites or Euro Europeans as whites, it, you know, the, the identification is implicit. The explicit identification of those who are not white in this case um, gets to be more explicit, even as there's a denial that you're being picked up because of your race, as, as Jean uh, and, and Naima were both, uh, were, were, were both uh, pointing to. And, and so um, on one hand, one can ask, you know, um, what's old ab ab about the virus or what, what does the virus point to that preexisted? Uh, and it, it surfaced and evidenced, as I said, a, a great deal of things about those differentiated sort of positionings within society. Uh, and on the other one can ask what is new? Um, uh, you know, what, what did the virus reveal that is genuinely uh, new? And it surfaced some things that should have been seen, but weren't hitherto being seen. And I think as Jean was pointing to, 
um, what what it did was it 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 um, it it both surfaced and exacerbated um, what's coming down the road. And I've, uh, I have a book coming out that is speaking extensively to this, not just in Europe but globally. And that is the ramping up, not just of surveillance, but what I call tracking as the driving force of capitalism today, right? Um, you were being tracked extensively before this. I mean, we all were, right? I mean, you just click on anything and you were being tracked, right? Uh, you use your phone to go anywhere or take your, your cell phone with you, you're being tracked. Um, what the response to the virus has done is just naturalized that condition. Um, you know, just by virtue of, oh, we're going to track you to see whether you're in contact with anybody else who's had the virus. And, you know, our lives are just a, a complete tracked system um, uh, going forward in, in, in every which way. Uh, and they're, they're rather deep and disturbing considerations that on one hand are racially indexed and on another hand that are completely ubiquitous. Uh, of course, those who are better placed, historically white, um, in terms of socioeconomic um, um, sort of reference points, um, can in a way, um, uh, you know, veil themselves, right, in, in, in relation to some of that more readily uh, than, than those um, uh, who, who, who are not. Uh, and, uh, you know, that will come continued, there was a question about whatever, whatever happened to class in all of this. I mean, we've been refer referencing class without calling them as such, right? When you talk about privilege, um, position, power within society and so on, I mean, of course, class is being uh, referenced in the way in which Stuart Hall sort of spoke about you know, race as being a modality in terms of which class operates and vice versa. Absolutely. And all kinds of important intersections as well, which clearly the discussion we've just had on COVID reveals. Um, I've, again, got lots of different questions coming. Um, not surprisingly, since where we are um, in real space, located at the LSE in the UK, um, I've got a couple of questions, actually, Nima, on your research with regard to Brexit. Um, one from Tess Lambert from Cambridge um, asking about, where is it here? Um, wondering how you think the hierarchy of whiteness within Europe is East versus West and has an effect on the non-white experience in Europe, or is there a difference in the perception of non-white races in Eastern and Southern Europe compared to the West and the North? Um, and there was another question somewhere in here, if I've just lost it, on the different communities voting in the UK. And I can't find it. This is what happens when we have such a wonderful long list. Um, well, why don't I invite Nima to answer that while I search up the other one that I was going to put to you. Uh, yeah, thank you, Tess, for your for your question. Um, I think, uh, as David, David was saying, that uh, racism has different expressions in, in different contexts. Um, I think... This um, there's always a kind of aspiration to whiteness and Europeanness in different parts of Europe. Um, and what I was describing earlier about the core periphery of Europe, so the core is 
Western Europe and is seen as the center of civilization, culture, and, and so on. And the kind of outer parts of Europe, whether Eastern Europe or Southern Europe, is kind of seen as um, a bit further away from that core of civilization and so on. And I think um, there are kind of racial logics um, at play and racism kind of between East-South, um, maybe not as much today, but um, Southern Europe was being was seen as more primitive because it was closer to Africa. So that was kind of um, another way that the kind of racism um, manifested, not just to non-Europeans, but the others of Europe and um, how European you were was depended on how close you were to the core. Um, I think... Um, there's something else that uh, something reminded me earlier about the world map that we have today and um, the way that it was drawn up with Germany at the heart of the the world and in the centre. And um, we still have that world map to this day where Europe is at the centre and everything, everyone else surrounds it. Um, so um, in terms of experiences of racism, I think um, it will vary between context but there's um there's experiences of racism of black and asian people from eastern europeans um in in the uk um and to be fair vice versa but um the kind of what we've seen with um groups that have become white over time or become seen as white is um the kind of emphasis on how white they are compared to their black or brown um, counterparts. So with, for example, the Irish and Italians in the US, they were, they also occupied um, low socioeconomic positions compared um, similar to African-Americans, but it was their whiteness that allowed them to become American and become seen as more white um, compared to African-Americans, for example. Um, so there's kind of different experiences of racism, but the aspiration is always to be closer to whiteness and Europeanness, and that usually manifests by um, negating others', others um, sense of belonging or emphasizing whiteness or Christianness. Um, over uh, racialized minorities. Um, was there another question? There was, and I found it. Um, this is Mary Dievsky. Again, a question about your research on Brexit, um, making the point, of course, that not all minorities favored remain, um, and asking the question about whether your research showed up, for example, um, second generation minorities possibly favouring leave because they favoured more migration from the Indian subcontinent? Yeah, so this was um, one of the um, motivations for supporting leave amongst um, ethnic minorities. Um, some ethnic minorities felt that Britain was prioritising its relationship with the EU over the, the Commonwealth um, and um felt that leaving the eu would lead to more trade and um and so on and they felt there was unfair um migration rules that with freedom of movement anyone from europe um could come and 
live and work in the EU, whereas there are historical links with other parts of the world and especially the Commonwealth uh, that was being, they felt that was being neglected. Um, so um, this was tends to be more first generation minorities compared to second generation. Um, and there was racism manifest that manifested towards Eastern Europeans um, in these um, in some of the ethnic minority leave voters that uh, the kind of anti-immigrant rhetoric that's used against them or has been um, since uh, post-war period um, being used against Eastern Europeans who are the newer migrants. Um, but it's interestingly, a lot of that included an erasure of colonialism and was based on a very sanitized version of history and um, talking about Britain's links and uh, the Commonwealth as a family and so on. Um, while um, not referring to the brutality and violence of empire, but kind of seeing it in quite a nostalgic, rosy way that we see it usually in the UK being um, reproduced by former colonial subjects or the descendants of uh, colonial subjects. Thank you very much. I'm aware that we are unfortunately nearing the end of our time. Um, I'm going to gather up a series of questions and I will put them out there and then I'm going to invite all of our speakers to reflect upon them um, and as well to add any other comments they think are important um, that we share before we end the session. Um, I, I have a couple of, of questions which certainly seem to speak to another controversy we've seen across the newspapers um, lately. Uh, Susanna Kwiatkowska asked the question, how do mixed race people uh, fit into this discussion? Obviously, this has been a big point of discussion in the UK um, following the interview um, with um, Meghan and Harry um, and Oprah Winfrey. Um, we have another question from Tess Lambert, um, again from Cambridge University, asking questions about how European countries maintain their colonial ties um, in other ways, for instance, um, the existence of the British Commonwealth um, and the extent to which this is used now to justify the colonialism of the past by denying its past offences. Um, and then finally, a couple of questions which really in invite your thoughts on where we go from here um, in a more optimistic vein. Um, Rosa Maria Vaughan asks, what policy options can we use to break these racialized patterns? And Juliana Aranga uh, indeed puts this responsibility back on, on all of us, um, noting that academia is a predominantly white space that has also perpetuated racism. Um, and how do you see us making actual progress within this academic space as well as politically? Shall we go in the same order that we presented? Jean, would you like to kick off? I, uh, sure, I was still sort of uh, formulating my answers, but I can I can uh, touch on some of this. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the question of sort of the role of academia in perpetuating, uh, you know, at having perpetuated uh, racist ideas, I think it's important to keep in mind that racist, that academia continues to perpetuate racist ideas, right? So it's a racist institution, um, and so I think that the point um, I think it was in, the, in that same question around sort of the Audrey Lord uh, Little Masters tools uh, dismantled Masters House was very apt because we are working within existing white supremacist structures. I like to think as a black academic myself, 
I'm not, um, I'm part of uh, thinking critically about how to dismantle those structures, but I also am very cognizant of the ways in which I'm complicit in some of the uh, malpractices that academia perpetuates as it relates to, to racism. And I think one way to think about this um, is to the dis discussion of diversity, equity, inclusion discourses, which I think oftentimes um, have, been, have evolved into sort of more neoliberal kinds of discourses that don't actually interrogate uh, racism on college campuses, whether, you know, Europe or otherwise, in terms of sort of thinking about the disproportion of Black faculty on university campuses, um, who gets tenure, who, who gets promoted, these sorts of things. And so I do think there's a way that um, so even these discourses that are ostensibly about race and higher education actually serve to perpetuate racism or, or perpetuate the existing status quo on these issues. Um, in terms of the where do we go from, he from here uh, question, I always um, kind of joke that as a sociologist, I like to not have to be optimistic. And so I don't feel particularly optimistic about kind of where we are both Europe and just globally around these questions. So I'm never someone who has a sort of, um, you know, a mat idea that 50 years in the future will be thinking about these topics more critically. I mean, I think um, as David noted earlier, the decolonization discourse is I think in some ways promising, but I think um, also as I, as I really appreciate that you, that you remarked earlier, it also means that we have to grapple with the ongoing colonial relationships. And I say this also as, uh, as an American, uh, as a US citizen, um, and thinking about, for example, the relationship between the United States and Puerto Rico. And it's, you know, so it's like just even societies that we don't imagine are still colonial empires still have colonial relationships. And so I think um, in that sense, there's a lot of education work to be done around just even that fact before we get to sort of how to dismantle these, these fantasies. Um, and I guess that also goes to the question of sort of uh, European countries maintaining their colonial ties and, and sort of, uh, you know, the pros and cons of that. Um, to the question of mixed race and whiteness, I would also say, I think that's a really broad question um, because I think people who can be classified as mixed race identify personally in a variety of different ways. And of course it's, you know, identity is, you know, simultaneously how you see yourself but also how society sees you or how society, you know, uh, uh, reads you, if you will. And so I think, um, you know, so, so some of that, I think gets back to the earlier questions or the earlier points that Nima was making around the sort of proximity of, to whiteness and why that becomes really crucial. And I think there's just a different, different ways that people who can be classified as mixed race, whatever mixed, whatever races are mixing, I don't really like the term mixed race, but um, uh, it feels very awkward, but, um, you know, are, are sort of thinking about that proximity to whiteness. Um, and I'll, I'll stop there for that. Uh, yeah, just just very quickly on um, mixed raceness. Um, I think well, a lot of the racism that mixed race people experience is is not necessarily to do with visible skin color. I mean, a lot of uh, mixed race people can be white passing, um, but there's also, um, I mean, for many years we had this one drop rule that um, kind of any um, anyone who um, had any uh, black or um, brown background was immediately black or brown. They couldn't, they couldn't claim whiteness or to be uh, white as well. Um, and I think on the question of um, Meghan Markle and the interview that they gave, I was thinking about the, um, the experiences of mixed race people and the racism that they experienced from white members of their family, um, which, I guess Archie will become aware of um, and how he's um, uh, how 
the first mixed race um, members of the royal family are being um, kind of treated as problematic and not in line with um, tradition. Um, and what's um, is interesting the way that the Commonwealth has been talked about in relation to the um, to the interview and how racist the um, royal family is. And um, I think it was on Fox News that presenter said that um, the Queen can't be racist because most of her common, Commonwealth is um, black or Asian. So I think someone made the joke that the Queen can't be racist. Most of her her best colonies are black um, or her former colonies are black. Um, so yeah, it's beyond parody. Um, so, and interesting, I, I think Barbados has removed the Queen as their head of state recently, or they're planning to. So um, I think there's not just a reckoning around um, colonization or decolonization in Western countries, but around the world and um, how, um, the um in terms of policy um i think what needs to happen is a huge um educational change in how we learn about the empire and um learn about colonialism and so on um but i mean i don't see that happening under a tory government but um there are just things that people don't know about about the um horrific crimes of empire and colonialism and I think that would make them think differently about how we um, commemorate slave owners and um, colonizers. So thank you all for this rich conversation, it's been really interesting. Um, I'm going to start just by saying that I share um, Jean's uh, pessimism without being at all Afro-pessimist about this. Um, <laughs> Um, I, um, you know, there are these cycles and registers and re-registering uh, of forms in old, new terms, and uh, some of this gets to repeat itself. I want to begin my comments just by um, uh, referring to Dari Wilson's uh, interesting question, because I think it does speak um, dramatically to the moment uh, we're in. So in France in particular, but not only, uh, the way in which decolonization, part of my pessimism, right, has been taken up as the object of dismissal on the part of, you know, not least Macron himself, right? Um, and so there's a way in which even as there are interventions that are being made, they get repositioned um, Nima's reference to Generation Identitaire sort of early on becomes a way in which, you know, uh, old tropes get taken up and repositioned against themselves in, in, in re renewed ways. So that um, uh, it's important to look at the way in which um, Europeans, both in France and Germany explicitly, but elsewhere as well, uh, are, po are positioning um, you know, critical race theory uh, as it's emerging in the European continent and decolonization as it's emerging in, right, in European discourse as an American inheritance that should be resisted and, and kept at bay, right? Um, and so you can see the way abolition would be another sort of term of these kinds, even as the terms are invested with different meanings by different people and so on. Um, so it's not... It, it's important to keep on pushing uh, 
um, of course, uh, and I'll come back to that in just a minute, um, but mindful, right, of the way in which these terms get appropriated and pushed back against themselves. Just one more thing ab about the pushback against decolonization. Um, it's a global and I think globally coordinated phenomenon coming from the right, funded by conservative money, probably in the United States. So it's deeply ironic that the dismissal of decolonization would be funded by American conservative <laughs> funding. I mean, I'm making this up, but I'm pretty sure I'm right about it, right? Uh, uh, as the kind of um, global conservative movement kind of banding together in the face of what they're seeing as a threat to its um, sort of uh, global uh, positioning over here. Um, the, the question about, um, you know, what to do about the academy is an incredibly long discussion point. The European Institute might do a whole session on this. Um, uh, I think it's, it's important. Uh, you know, uh, universities are classically in from the, you know, certainly after the Second World War onwards and maybe earlier, a middle class making institution to bring class back into it. And the way in which class and race reconfigure themselves within that uh, constitution, um, you know, looking towards upward mobility and so on and so forth uh, is, is an important one. And how race gets positioned both inside and out uh, and how it is also a platform to be able to organize uh, become important uh, discussion points. And then uh, just finally, um, you know, what to do. Uh, there's no, there's no one thing, right? And it's, it's never, you're going to do this thing and it's going to be over, right? Anti-racism is a lifelong undertaking, I'm sorry to say, in, in so blatant terms. But, uh, uh, you know, as soon as you think you've won a battle, there's another one to be sort of faced up to. Uh, and and uh, it's ongoing and, uh, you know, mixed raceness, I, I would say, is sort of, uh, factored into that set of considerations, it becomes a new way of actually, um, uh, you know, the new registers in in or old new registers in which uh, uh, these things get 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 formulated. And of course, people of different racially configured backgrounds get positioned and registered in different ways, sort of uh, in these things. But being attuned to the you know, the nuances in which these things present and represent themselves, I think is important. I'll leave it at that. Thank you very much. Well, unfortunately, we have reached the end of our time. Uh, so really, it's just for me to thank Jean and Nima and David for being willing to engage with us in this very important conversation. Um, I found it absolutely fascinating. And I think it's fair to say the audience has too from the range of questions um, that we've had. Uh, I'm sorry we didn't have a chance to be able to put all of them to you, uh, but certainly on behalf of myself and the European Institute, the LSE, thank you so much for joining us. And indeed, thank you, everybody in the audience, also for attending uh, and for asking so many interesting questions. I hope everybody has a wonderful rest of day, wherever they are. Um, and again, thank you so very much for being with us. <laughs>